Well, good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time together in fellowship and in worship and uh, the opportunity we have to be in your word. In this brief time that we have, Lord, may we receive from you the word that we need to encourage us to keep going, to encourage us to be able to keep moving forward in your kingdom and according to your will. We ask that you inspire us this evening to not give up any ground, but to take ground for you, to venture out, to follow the example of David, to be faithful not only as a worshiper, but a warrior, to be able to stand out and step up be counted for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, we're going to just look at this one chapter. And as we do, this chapter is really all about David's many victories. And I think it's important to remember your victories. I also think it's important to observe and analyze the victories of the men and the women in the Bible. There are certain key elements to getting the victory. Does anyone here not want to get the victory in their life? Does anyone here want to be defeated? Of course not. No one wants to be defeated. All of us want to experience victory over sin, victory over the enemy, victory in our lives. So it's worth taking a few moments tonight to look at David's many victories. Now, this is sort of a potpourri of different accounts, and David's many victories are put together as we reflect back as the post-exilic Jews have come back to the area of Jerusalem and after the captivity are now reminiscing, remembering how their second king, but really the first king with a heart for God in their kingdom, was able to be victorious over the enemies of God's people. We have many enemies today. I'm sure you know that. There are people that literally hate us simply because of our love for Christ. There are people that hate us because our beliefs are not what they want to believe, and they're not content to just allow us to believe differently. They want to silence us, cancel us, shut us down. They'd be very happy if we just fell off the face of the earth. But I got news for you. The day is coming for Christ's church where we won't fall off the face of the earth. We'll be taken from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. And it says we'll forever be with the Lord. Amen? But until that day, we're to occupy. Until that day comes, we are to live our lives for him. So let's look at the first victory in verse 1. It says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. And it's just one verse. But do you realize what's, what's summed up in that verse? You can't read the Bible, <coughs> excuse me, up to this book and not recognize that the Philistines were the sworn enemy, the mortal enemies of Israel for 300 years. 300 years. And it simply says, almost nonchalantly, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. It's like the way David took out the giant, Goliath, of Gath. He went in there, he took over the land, he defeated the city of Gath, where Goliath was living. He defeated the the Philistines and subdued them. And this was, as we've talked about, the primary reason that the tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, had desired for David to rule over them as king. He was king of the southern kingdom after the war with Saul. And after Saul died, 
And the southern kingdom of Judah, well, he was their king for about seven and a half years, but then the rest of Israel came to him and said, David, we want you to be our king. Save us from the Philistines. So for the next 33 years, he was king over all Israel. And very shortly after becoming king, he subdued the Philistines. You know, I, 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 I should probably just admit this. I love historical documentaries. And I happen to be a student of history. And I, in particular, uh, I really enjoy studying World War II. Uh, World War I, too, but more so World War II. I really find it fascinating. There's, there's so much footage and there's so much written about it. I've been watching a historical documentary on uh, Netflix that goes through the different battles and kind of documents the entire war. And as I look at these things and I look at our, the, our leaders at the time and Winston Churchill in Europe, and you realize, you know, the people were looking for someone to lead them and to, to help them to be victorious. They were willing to fight but they needed good leadership. And as I think about how God worked, even against the evil forces in Europe at that time, and clearly there was no doubt, there was no question in World War II, who were the, who were the bad guys, who were the good guys? I, I don't think you have to even consider that. War is always ugly, and, and unfortunately sometimes necessary, but it's always ugly and horrible. There's nothing good about war. But as I was looking at this show and, and, and sort of remembering how many victories and defeats, but certainly victories the Allied forces experienced along the way to victory. You know, as I, as I look at that, I think the, the name of the, the uh, series is actually, I think, Road to Victory or something of that nature. But anyway, it's really good. But the thing that you, as you realize as you're watching history, you realize that God set things up sometimes, and, and these victories, some of them were inexplicable. And it's true that when God is with you and you're fighting evil, you can expect God to be with you. And when God is with you, who can be against you? And as I watch this history of the war, I realize, you know, you consider all of the decisive victories that the Allies experienced. And you realize in the Bible, God's people had an experience of decisive victory over the enemies. And it's a heroic moment to consider that evil is defeated when good men and women stand up, good and godly men and women stand up and are willing to be counted, are willing to stand and to fight. That, that's something that inspires me, and David's victories inspire me as well. This verse, it's just one verse, it recaps one battle, one battle within David's many decisive victories against the Philistines. He freed them from an enemy, a 300-year enemy, and I think the victory in Europe and the victory in Japan, certainly in the last century, were moments. But those enemies were a decade or two, maybe the most, in some cases less. Imagine an enemy that's been an enemy for 300 years being soundly defeated by David and his forces. That should help you to put it in perspective. So David took Gath, surrounding villages, and he took them from the Philistines. And David also defeated the Moabites. Now this is interesting in verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought tribute. Basically, when we see subdued and subjected and offering tribute, what that says is the enemy surrendered and said, we'll stop fighting if you just let us pay you for the privilege of existing. That's a, that's a resounding victory. It's, it's almost an unconditional surrender, really. So you have to recognize these were great victories. 
David defeated the Moabites. He made them subject to the kingdom of Israel. Now, I want to give you a little reminder of history here. David had asked the king of Moab, the king of these people, (coughs) to protect his family from Saul while he was in exile. And that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 22. Why would David ask the Moabites to protect his family? Well, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. He had familial connections to the Moabites. And he used those familial connections to secure a political asylum for his family. Why would he do that? Well, he's on the run. All they would have had to do is get hold of his family and threaten him, and he may have been forced to surrender. So very wisely, when he went on the run, he let his family know. Some of his family came with him and fought alongside him, but much of his family, his parents and probably the women and children, escaped to Moab outside the the realm, the kingdom of Israel, where they were protected by the king of Moab. Now that's interesting because now we're told that things have changed. David's relationship with the king of Moab had clearly changed over the past few years. Maybe it's a different king. But there may have been or must have been some serious provocation judging from David's harsh treatment of them. What could have changed? Well, we don't know, but one possible suggestion, in fact, I think the probable suggestion, is that the Moabites had failed to protect David's family or parents while he was in exile. Maybe something happened to them. Maybe there was some skirmish. Maybe they didn't follow through on their commitment to protect his family. If that were to happen, you can imagine why David would subdue them. Whatever the reason is, David has now come in, and they're subject to him as well. So he's got the Philistines to his west, the Moabites to the southeast. Let's let's continue. (coughs) Then we're told in verses 3 and 4 that David defeated Hadadezer when he tried to expand his kingdom on Israel's eastern border. So he's surrounded by enemies, and yet he continues to be victorious. Many of the Psalms David wrote had to do with being surrounded by his enemies, but God's still giving him the victory. Amen? I think of Psalm 91. So David wrote a lot about these things. But we read in verse 3, Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, when he went to establish, that is when when, uh, Hadadezer went to establish his control along the Euphrates River. Now that's to the east. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, 20,000 foot soldiers, he hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. And when the Arameans, uh, oh no, we'll just stop right there. And so, as it says, uh, hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. So in verses 3 and 4, we learn that he had another great victory over uh, a man who ruled Zobah. This man was the most powerful of the Aramean leaders. This was the most powerful Aramean state at this time. Aram was the area of Syria. And so another enemy, right, another enemy, and he soundly defeated these individuals. He captured the chariots, the soldiers, destroyed the majority of the horses, which meant they could never regain their advantage militarily. Because if you had horses, it's like the equivalent today of having tanks. So he destroyed the horses, and you might say, oh, that doesn't seem right. Well, don't forget, if you're going to keep that many horses, you have to take care of and feed that many horses. So he kept a number of horses, but he didn't need all of those horses. So they hamstrung them, and they destroyed their cavalry. Uh, Also, I want to remind you that the Psalms tell us that the Lord did not want them to trust in chariots or horses. They were not supposed to put their trust in chariots, but in the Lord their God. And so that's good. That's good. 
So, David did not multiply horses at this time in his reign, which was a good way to be and a good way to respond to God. Put your trust in God, not in your own strength. David wrote those things many times. Well, then we read in verses 5 and 6 that David defeated the Arameans of Damascus. Same people group, different area to the northeast. Because they came out to help Hadadezer, David defeated them too. Are you seeing a pattern here? David is continually victorious over his enemies because he did what? He trusted God. He looked to God. That's the overwhelming message this evening. In fact, let's read verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, it says, When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons, that is, areas where you store troops, garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. And notice this, the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. You would be wrong to think that, while David was a great warrior, you'd be wrong to think that he achieved this victory on his own. He didn't put his trust in chariots. He put his trust in the Lord, his God. And we are told, and we're going to be told again, the Lord Jehovah gave David victory everywhere he went. If you're trying to get the victory in your life, in your own strength, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There are a lot of Christians that become Christians, and then they proceed to try to please God in their own strength. Oh, God, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to curse anymore. Then they curse. Oh, God, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to lie anymore. And then they lie. Oh, God, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And then they do it. And they think, what's wrong with me? Am I double-minded? Well, of course you are. You're putting your trust in yourself. But when you say, Lord, give me the strength not to lie. Give me the strength not to curse, not to sin in this way or that way. Lord, you work through my life. You give me the victory. Then you'll be able to say like David that the Lord gave him victory everywhere he went. You want the victory? Say amen. Amen. Sometimes we fail and we wonder why. There is only one reason, really very simple, only one reason you fail to please God in your life. Because you're trusting in your own strength and not in the strength of the Lord. Now that sounds like a very simple answer, like I'm oversimplifying it. But let me break it down for you. Trusting God... And in his strength means asking God in prayer to strengthen you. Most of the time we fail, we don't ask, do we? We have not because we ask not. You know, you fail and then you, did did you really stop and say, Lord, give me the strength not to fail? Or did you just go out there thinking I'm not going to fail? And then you do and you wonder why. You have not because you ask not. I think so many times we don't experience God's victory because either we really don't want God's victory Or we're unwilling to humble ourselves before God because the scripture says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. So when I'm talking about putting your strength or finding your strength in God and putting your trust in him, it's humbling yourself. It is humbling to say, Lord, I'm a failure. It's humbling to say, I can't do this. God, help me to do this. When you do that, you're humbling yourself, and the scripture tells us he will lift us up. So that is the key to victory, not trusting in yourself, but trusting in God. And I think a lot of us fail for that reason. Well, then we continue on, and we see that, uh, and as we just read, David 
struck down the soldiers, uh, we've, we've already read that he struck down 22,000, quite a few soldiers. And this is victory after victory after victory. It says that he struck down their soldiers, he made them subject to the kingdom of Israel, <clears throat> and he acknowledged it was the Lord, not him. And so, another victory. Then, we get to verses 7 through 11. Now, this is very interesting, because when we're successful in life, generally, not always true, but generally when you're successful at your job or in your business, you're successful with your investments, whatever it is, you benefit financially. Generally, success is rewarded financially. Again, not always, but generally it is. So as you're victorious, as you're successful, as things go well with you, you may have, uh, your bank account may increase, your, your, your businesses may do well, your, your assets may uh, increase and appreciate. And there's nothing wrong with that because God blesses us and provides for us. Amen? But once God blesses us, and we've talked about this recently, it's incumbent upon us to be a channel, a vessel by which God can bless others. God's blessings aren't given to us just to be selfish. They're given to us to be a vehicle or a vessel for blessing to others. And David understood that in order to build the temple, they needed resources. Resources. Now, David could have done like the church has done through the centuries. Beg, borrow, and steal. Knock on people's door. You know, tax everyone into oblivion or, or just guilt them into giving. He could have done that. He didn't do anything of the kind. What we learn in verses 7 through 11 is David, every time he defeated an enemy and he gained plunder or the tribute came to him from his enemies, he took that plunder, he took those resources, the tribute of his subjects, and he put it toward building the temple. He invested it in the kingdom of God. I can only describe to you in these terms what I'm about to say in this way. If you invest in the market wisely, the market will reward you. It will. If you invest in certain types of investments, there's risk, but generally over time, especially long-term investors, almost always see their investments appreciate if you make an investment in the market. And again, there's nothing wrong with making an investment like that. However, it is as true, if not more true, that if you make an investment in the kingdom of God, those investments appreciate as well. As we invest our time, our talent, our treasure in the kingdom, what we find is what we put in God multiplies better than any IRA. He multiplies, and as we look back over our life and we see that we gave X amount, we see that our X amount was multiplied by God's Spirit in the kingdom, but also in our own lives. Everyone I know who is faithful to invest in the kingdom of God, is truly faithful, generally will give you some type of testimony that sounds like this. I can't outgive God. The more I give of my time, my talent, my treasure, God just continues to provide abundantly for me. All of my needs are met. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, the washing machine doesn't break down or the car doesn't break down, or you go out and you have to buy new furniture and you get a killer deal. And you look at your balance book and you say, geez, I'm ahead of the game. How did that happen? I believe with all of my heart that if you give, God will give to you. That doesn't mean 
That's why we give. But I know that you can't outgive God. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Whatever a man sows, that he's going to reap. You need to understand that if you're investing your life this much in the kingdom, and I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about time, your heart. Well, this much may equal this much, but I think we all know that if you invest this much, it means this much. I think a great example is if God were handing out money, and you showed up at an event where you knew God was going to hand out money, and you showed up with a shot glass, and you said, here, fill me up, he would. You might get a buck and change. But if you know God is out there with resources to abundantly bless you, and to use that same analogy, I would show up with an 18-wheeler. Fill it up, and he will. I think so many of us, it's about capacity. We don't come to God and open our hearts saying, Lord, use me, Lord, equip me, provide for me, give me all I need to be used by you. He has never failed, as we sang tonight, he's never failed us yet. He has never failed to provide us with that which we need to do what he's called us to do. But if you show up with a shot glass, don't expect much to happen in your life. Take all of your life, surrender it to him, and watch God provide for you. Anyway, verses 7 through 11. Look what David did. He took the gold shields carried by the officers of Hadadezer. Uh, these were ceremonial shields. And brought them to Jerusalem. And from Teba to Kun, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, David took a great quantity of bronze, which Solomon, that is later, used to make the bronze sea and the pillars and the various bronze articles, which we'll talk about. That was all for the temple. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son Hadoram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tau. Well, Hadadoram brought all kinds of articles of gold, silver, and bronze. Hey, he knew which side of the toast the butter was on, you know what I mean? He understood that if he went out and greeted David and showed him respect and brought tribute, he wasn't going to get destroyed. And he was happy because his enemy just got defeated by David. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So, you know, see, that, that, is, that is just some of the detente and political stuff that was happening. But David's treasury just became uh, more and more filled with, with plunder and with resources. Um, <clears throat> then we read in, in verse 11, King David dedicated, consecrated, that is, he gave them away. David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold he had taken from all these nations, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. So rather than David becoming extremely rich, which, by the way, he was entitled to all of that, he made that investment in the kingdom of God. Now, do you begin to understand why God said of this man who was a sinner, an adulterer, and later even a murderer, do you understand why God said of him, he's a man after my own heart? This man did these things and took these resources and invested them in the kingdom because he had a heart for God. So listen, you know that we're, we don't push on giving, you know, we don't pass the plate, we don't do any of that, and that's not what tonight's about. I just want every one of you to realize that if you approach God by saying, well, my money belongs to God, I give him, let's say, 10%. Let's say it's 10%, it doesn't have to be 10 I give him 10% and the rest of it's mine. If you approach things that way, you're missing it. 
100% of what you have belongs to God. And you give away as he directs you, not as I say or anyone tells you. You give of your time and your resources as God leads you. And believe me, whatever you leave behind, whatever you don't give, will be multiplied exponentially. Listen, I've been doing this now for 35 years. I've been giving of my own resources and investing my life and my time. And I have never come up short. God has never allowed me to outgive him. He's always been better to me than I've ever been in being responsible to give. I'm just telling you. That's why I'm not afraid to give. I'm not afraid to invest because I know God is trustworthy. And if I give according to the Lord's leading of my time, my talent, and my treasure, I will never, ever find myself in my life saying, man, I'm really sorry I invested in the kingdom of God. I kind of feel like I got ripped off. I, I really wish I hadn't given. I've never said that. Never said that. You can trust God, amen? As he leads you, as he leads you. Not as I tell you to give. I'm not telling anybody to give. Just be open to whatever God will lead you to do and do as he leads you to do. Okay, so there's an example. Uh, He wasn't called to build a temple. We discussed this in chapter 17 last week. But he was abundantly blessed in order to provide for it. So he didn't build the temple. He just set the whole thing up to be built. His career, as we discussed last week, as a warrior disqualified him from building the temple. But the gold, the silver, the bronze, all that he conquered, all that he took, he put aside for building the temple. Wouldn't it be nice if our government actually built up a surplus? Can you imagine such a thing? Isn't it amazing? Just think about this for just a second, okay? Good businesses and and good individuals who prepare for the future, we all have hopefully savings accounts and retirement accounts and whatever. If you're a little older, maybe this is of more import than if you're younger. But the idea is to not spend more than you make and to put some money aside for a rainy day. Our government does the exact opposite of wisdom. They spend money they don't have, so much so that now we're suffering hyperinflation. They don't want to use that term, but that's what we're experiencing. When prices soar 10%, 12% higher than they were a few months ago, that's, that's hyperinflation. So now our money's worth less. That's because our leaders seem to think it's okay to buy everything on credit. When I was a very young man, 18 years old, Visa loved me. They sent me a credit card. I was shocked that they wanted me to have a credit card. They gave me a credit card. I think my limit was two or 3000 It wasn't much. but <clears throat> And I made them happy by using it. And I found that it was a really nice way to spend money I didn't have. Very shortly after spending money on that nice new credit card, which I still have, by the way. I've been a customer for that long. But, you know... What I found was, guess what happens? When you can't pay the whole bill, you have to make installments, and the interest rate's like 20% if you're lucky. So basically, you're borrowing from the mafia, except it's legal. And shortly after I had done this a number of times with some cash advances and trying to pay bills and borrow from Peter to pay Paul, I realized I was in a sinking hole. So I did the only thing I could. I sold my car, paid off all of my debts, This is shortly before Michelle and I got married. And I'm glad to say, other than a mortgage, which I paid off in like 12 or 13 years, I've never paid a dime of interest. That was a hard lesson at 18, 20 years old. Hard lesson. But I learned it. If our government would just learn that it's better to have a surplus than it is to have a deficit, 
and to carry a huge debt, we would all be better off. Amen? I don't know what it's going to take. I really don't. So David had this surplus. And you would think he would just pile up the wealth, put it in a cave, and be like Alibaba or something, you know? No. No. He realized he didn't need that. He wanted to invest that in building the temple. That's where his heart was at. So God not only blessed David with the resources to build the temple, he blessed David with victory over his enemies and multiplied his own personal resources as well. I'm not going to say you can have it all, but David had it all because he gave all to God. So what's the lesson? Put God first in all things, in all things, and God will bless you abundantly. Okay, that's a great encouragement. So I love that he did this. I mean, the Lord said no to his desire. He wanted to build the temple. But he blessed him in order to provide for others, which he promptly did. And David spent the majority of his reign making extensive preparations for the temple to be built, which we talked about last week. Okay, got some more victories. 12 to 13. Abishai, son of Zariah, that's David's uh, nephew, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, which was on their territory. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And we read it again. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. Amazing. Amazing. What happened here is very simple. The Edomites always hated Israel. You'll remember they were descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob received the blessings Esau did not. So the Edomites were like that, well, in this case, it was an older brother, who just always envied his younger brother. Their descendants envied their descendants. And even though they were closely related, there was an envy, a hatred, really, between the peoples, and especially from the Edomites, to the Israelites. In fact, you may or may not know this, but the last known Edomite in history that we're aware of, they were called Edomaeans at this point, was Herod, Herod the Great. Think about that. Herod and his line. So you could see that there was no love lost between these peoples, these people groups. So here's what happened in the time of David, though. The Edomites, they actually attacked Israel um, on their own territory in the Valley of Salt. This, this, they got into this war, and David's nephew Abishai led this battle under David's, David's command, and they made them subject to the kingdom of Israel. In fact, David's fame spread throughout the nations that surrounded Israel after he soundly defeated them, according to 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. The whole area understood. David gets the victory. His, the, his Lord, his God, gives him the victory over the enemies. And he was a great and mighty warrior, but it was God that gave him the victory. And uh, then we learn something else, that David acknowledged that the Lord had given him victory over his enemies. If you don't think so, remember that David wrote Psalms 2 and Psalms 60 at this time in his life, giving the credit to God for the victory over his enemies. He shows, and all of this shows, that he certainly learned to give God the glory for his many victories. We talked about this on Sunday. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Say it with me. To God be the glory. Always give him all the credit for everything he's doing, done, and will do in your life. Then we read in verses 14 through 17, and this is the last section, that David 
surrounded himself with very capable men that helped him to rule as king over all Israel. He didn't try to do a one-man show. Verses 14 through 17 tells us, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all the people. He's a good king. Joab, son of Zariah, that's again one of his nephews, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Shavsha was the secretary. Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Pelethites. And David's sons were chief officials at the king's side. Essentially, this tells us, David reigned over all Israel for the very first time since the Israelites had entered the Promised Land. They had it all. Why? Their leader loved God. He's a man after God's own heart. Oh, that God would give us a leader who was a man after God's own heart. Well, David appointed his nephew Joab as commander of the army. We do know this from the other books within the Bible, that there were 600 fiercely loyal men called the Giborim uh, that followed David. There was a regular standing army of 24,000 that rotated personnel once every month. And then there was a, the total number of trained men, including the reserves, was 288,000. So they had a huge army for that time. Uh, David also appointed a man by the name of Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, he was his chief of staff. And the title that he had, Mazkir, means one who reminds. So his job, he was responsible to keep the records, remind the king of appointments and responsibilities. Again, a chief of staff. Good to have a chief of staff. And then David appointed Zadok and Abiathar as Israel's high priests. Now, there's only supposed to be one priest. Yet at this time, there were two. It was a unique situation. It really only happened at this time, but it happened for a reason. Here's the reason. First of all, it's unusual and contrary to Mosaic law to have more than one high priest. But Zadok, who's mentioned, was a descendant of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. He was probably appointed high priest in Israel by Saul while David was in exile. This would have happened after the flight of Abiathar during the slaughter of the priests at Nob. So Saul appointed a priest that was loyal to him. Well, then Saul was killed, and the kingdom split, they fought a war. But during that time, Abiathar, who fled, Saul was a descendant of Ithamar, the fourth son of Aaron. So they're, they're related, but they're from different lines. This man had fled to David after the slaughter at Nob when Saul went in and killed all the priests. Abiathar later spent time with David. He was very loyal to David. He followed David into exile, so when they came out of exile, David wasn't going to remove him, but he couldn't remove Zadok either, so he had to keep these two priests. But then when David died, Abiathar conspired with one of David's sons, Adonijah, and Joab, who we mentioned, who was the head of the army, against Solomon. And so there was a split. Of course, Solomon became king, so Abiathar was removed as priest, and they went back to having one priest. It was the line of Zadok. Uh, so, by the way, do you remember uh, the house of Eli? Remember the, the priests, Eli the priest? Samuel was a little boy in the house of Eli, and there was a prophecy that Samuel brought about. It's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 through 27. But the prophecy was one of judgment, and it said that the house of Eli would be cut off. When Abiathar was removed as high priest, that prophecy was fulfilled. The entire line was severed. No more were they high priests. So that fulfilled God's word. Finally, we see there's a man by the name of Shavsha. He was the press secretary. Interesting, they had a press secretary. Uh, it basically means scribe. 
and uh, he was responsible for all official correspondence. Then there's Benaniah. He was the commander of the king's elite private bodyguard. As a king, you needed a bodyguard. And they were called the Carathites and the Pelathites. They were foreign missionaries, foreign mercenaries. And they were paid to protect the king. If the army were to be raised up against the king or there was a coup, these guys were paid to be loyal to David. So they were the uh, foreign mercenaries. They kept the regular standing army in check. And then finally we learned that David appointed his sons as chief officials and personal advisors. So David surrounded himself with very capable people. He didn't try to do it all himself. But the gist of everything we've read tonight is David was hugely successful. But there was a reason. And the reason was he trusted God. He gave God all the glory and God gave him the victory. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for David's example. We ask that you would help us to follow that example, to live our lives for your glory, that we would trust you and invest in your kingdom and live our lives for you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.